Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Ryder Ashcraft. And your co-host, Eugene Yang. This week, we're excited to sit down with Professor Mickey Bergman. Mickey Bergman is the Vice President and Executive Director for the Richardson Center for Global Engagement. He has pioneered the field of fringe diplomacy, an area of global engagement that connects people in arenas typically left void by governments and NGOs. In 2019, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the Richardson Center, managing private diplomacy efforts in North Korea, Cuba, Myanmar, the Middle East, Africa, and efforts to negotiate release of political prisoners. Mickey was a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Forces, was the executive director of the Global Alliances Program at the Aspen Institute, and is currently a professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches about emotional intelligence and international relations. He earned his bachelor's degree at the University of California, Los Angeles, and holds a master's degree in foreign service from Georgetown University. Mickey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll start off with our typical question. What are you reading? Well, I'm actually currently reading a book uh, by Ami Ayalon. Uh, the book is called Friendly Fire, uh, How Israel Became Its Own Worst Enemy and the Hope for Its Future. Uh, Ami Ayalon himself is a former commander of the Israeli Navy SEAL, former commander of the, of the Israeli Navy, director of the Shin Bet, which is a, a kind of the Israeli fusion between Secret Service and FBI. He was a cabinet minister and, and a parliament member. And there's something about the way he's telling the story, all this background in security. And he's, a, he's actually a, a kind of a war hero in Israel. He's known for his fearlessness um, in fighting. Uh, but he writes his book from, from a place of courage and vulnerability, which really speaks to me a, a lot. He's, uh, it's very inspiring to see how he's doing a lot of self-reflection after all these years. Uh, but he's walking us through this journey as he goes, as he grows up, and 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 you know, self doubt, questioning the everything that he has grown up with. Not because he wants to dismiss it, but he's infusing new information that he's getting uh, through his experiences in, uh, into it. And that's that, that's something that is uh, to me very uh, found very personally inspiring. Um, a, a full disclosure, he, Ami. Uh, Ailon is a is an old friend and mentor of mine, so I so I know him and I know his story. So reading his book is sometimes I turn the page and say, "Oh, no, I know that story already." But but it's great to see how he takes a reader uh, uh, through that journey, and and it just reminded me uh, when I moved. I grew up in Israel, uh, as you as you mentioned, writer in, in the little bio. I moved to Israel after my service in the IDF. So after six years in the IDF, I moved and and I was an undergrad student at UCLA, and one of the biggest challenges I've had when I walked into an American college campus um, it was organizations of Palestinian rights and I didn't know what to do with it because their narrative of history was completely contradictory to everything I grew up with but it's not something I just grew up with it's something that I went to war for based on those assumptions and it took me a while uh, it included a lot of listening and, and kind of uh, you know holding back um, specifically, for example, in, uh, about the story of what happened in 1948 uh, when Israel was established. And in my narrative, the way I grew up, the way my father taught me that and my school system taught me that, that the Arab residents of that, of that land left on the eve of the war, of the War of Independence, because Arab leaders told them, leave your homes in Jaffa, leave your homes in Haifa, 
because we're going to bomb the Jews, and when we win the war, you can come back. That was the narrative I grew up with. I went to UCLA to hear Palestinians and sons uh, and, and grandsons of Palestinians who left their home saying, no, no, the Israelis pushed us out. Um, and it took me a while to come to realize that the truth, like in many things around, uh, around in life, is somewhere in the middle. And now we, now, now we have declassified uh, reports and we know that it was a mixed bag. Some of them left um, for the reasons that I was told. Some of them were forced out. Um, and, and realizing that really changes the sense of orientation of your brain from growing up, going to war for that, risking your life for that, and, and what happens. And I remember I had this uh, pretty tough moment with my father coming back on one of my visits to Israel. I said, why didn't you tell me? And my father looked at me and he's like, of course we didn't tell you. We need to grow, to need to raise a generation based on the story of our people, not of somebody else's. Thank you for sharing that with us. So based off of those experiences that you had growing up and the experience of being a soldier in the IDF, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on the importance of continuing to be a scholar while you are in the military, maybe talking about uh, the importance of learning the history and the different perspectives and how that influences your leadership style in the military? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's very hard to, to get outside of, of the certain box of thinking that you grew up with and the assumptions you grew up with um, unless you read. And, and, you know, my wife will probably listen to this and start laughing. Ha <laughs> ha, he doesn't read much. It's true, I don't read much. But every time I do, um, it, it, it gives you that window into a, a perspective um, that helps you refine. You might be reading about something completely different, but it suddenly teaches you something and helps you see things in perspective or move out a little bit from, you know, from the little zone of war or, or service that, that you're at. And, and reflecting before this, uh, this interview, I, I was trying to remember what was the most impactful book that I read during my service. And, and funny enough, and, uh, it was actually Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Um, and, and yes, humorous, which is really important for survival in, in, in an environment like I had in South Lebanon uh, at the time, uh, but also for the sense of perspective. Uh, and, and very similar, I, I found it when I was reading it in South Lebanon, and I was, uh, I was in service mainly in, uh, in South Lebanon uh, during my time in the, uh, in the special unit, paratroopers unit in the IDF. Uh, we were doing two things in South Lebanon. We were both doing uh, sting operations, so special operations that were going after specific targets. But in the everyday, we were embedded in the, with the host community in South Lebanon. So we lived with them. We knew them. We actually, I served in a, in a town called Maljayoun, which is a little bit in the eastern side um, uh, uh, of, of Lebanon. And we had a castle, which was our base, but we shared that base with the South Lebanese army, which was our ally. Through, here's a Cash 22 story, kind of style story. While we were there, um, you know, military food, like soldiers always look for something better than that. Um, and there was a, a, there was a, a base mechanic uh, that beyond repairing all the Jeeps and, and, and equipment, everybody knew that about twice a week at a certain time in the morning, he shows up and he sells uh, manaesh. It's, it's a Lebanese baked bread with great toppings on it. Um, and there was never enough of it, enough supply and demand. Um, and so everybody would kind of play their shifts 
you know, to make sure that they just get off in time to be the first ones to get it before it's all gone. But at the same time, we also always knew that if you wanted to buy an AK-47 or any other ammunition, you go to the same guy. And you have to assume that the same guy that is selling it to us is also selling it outside of the base to anybody who wants to turn it um, against us. And um, and in South Lebanon, at least in my time, towards the end of the 1990s, we started feeling that there was a shift in the support of the population, of our host host population in uh, in South Lebanon. Uh, we would have on weekends, we would go and, and have dinners with the you know respected families in the village. And one son would be a member of the South Lebanese army, which is our ally. And his brother would be a member of Hezbollah, which was our first enemy and, uh, over there. And around the table, there would be conversations and arguments. But back in the field, one, uh, one brother would be fighting with us and another uh, brother would be trying to kill us. Um, and and it's, it's that kind of reality or, or absurdity of, of war that I found uh, 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 Cash-22 of helping me a lot in, in keeping that perspective. But it also helped me uh, kind of try and think through the lens or the eyes of, of our enemies in that case, because for me, I, very clearly for me, I was there because I was protecting the northern cities of Israel. And I had evidence of why I needed to do it. There were attacks and civilians were, were killed over time. For them, for the South Lebanese that were uh, my hosts, I was an occupier. I was a foreigner there. Now, early on, when Israel uh, went into South Lebanon, the whole of Lebanon was in a civil war. So we, as an occupying uh, force, the Israelis, basically kept stability in a country, in a different part of the country that was in civil war. So we were actually a positive influence. We invested in infrastructure and education, all of these things that you do and, uh, when you're responsible for a population. But over time, the, the civil war in the rest of Lebanon was over. And suddenly the tension started creeping to the south where we were. And at that point, we turned from a positive into a negative. We turned into a liability. We turned into a source of instability. And you could see how they are turning the weapons that we gave them around and started shooting us. And it, it, it definitely don't justify um, uh, anybody who wants to shoot me, but I understood why they were doing it. And, and that's, again, it's the ability of a book that was written about World War II to teach me a lot about the human interaction uh, in the environment in which I was serving. I want to follow up on your thought about understanding the enemy through their eyes and what they're thinking. And I feel like right now, you know, we do have a lot of combating narratives, polarizing narratives, you know, in America, right? What are some strategies for what, you know, how have you listened to and confronted some of these narratives that are vastly different from either how you grew up or what you've been told or what, you know, if you even swore to defend, how do you, how do you wrestle with that and get to a point where you've got both in your mind and, and have that perspective? Yeah, it's, it, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and I think you're, you're, you're right with your, in, in your insight into this. As, as we've learned uh, um, uh, over the last, um, not only the last few years, but probably the last couple of decades here, there, is, there are facts, there are narratives, you know, and facts matter, truth matter, um, and you, you need to know what those facts are. In my case, I told you the story about early on when I've learned about what happened in 1948, and I, you know, I, at first I thought it was just different narrative, then I realized that, you know, 
actually the facts that I had were not complete. They were not completely wrong, but they were not complete. Mm. And, and my own self-exploration was very important to find what the facts are. But having said that, uh, even if the facts are not accurate, um, uh, the narrative still means a lot. It doesn't justify it, but it gives you a, a window into understanding what somebody else is thinking through their narrative. And that is something that is extremely important to do. That's the heart of emotional intelligence or one of the planes of emotional intelligence when you when you try and think of uh, awareness of others. And, and that part, and, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm happy to kind of dive into some of the examples of, of how it, it manifests itself in, in my work in, in international, but specifically in our country right now, we, we have to realize that that the narrative is so important to understand the motivation of people. I, I'm a big part of, of emotional intelligence is understanding that it's not about good and evil. It's not about good and bad. Um, it's complex. Um, uh, it's a lot of complexities. And when you look at personalities, a, a certain personality trait or character does not predict where you land in a political position, in, in your political uh, thinking. Uh, but it does uh, help understand how people deal with circumstances, how they deal with stresses, how they feel deal with, with trauma. Um, and from that perspective, I think we're looking at what's what's been happening to our society in the United States. We've been dealing with 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 a couple of traumas on a national level, but uh, that you know the pandemic, you know the the social unrest that we've seen, uh, the racial, the institutional racism, uh, everything that we've seen uh, uh, following the elections here until until uh, um, until the transfer of power yesterday, at least um, uh, all of these are uh, it's a national collection of national traumas. That are experienced nationally, uh, sorry, that are uh, that are are national in their scope, but they're experienced individually, and that is something so important to understand. And that means that each of us, let's talk about the pandemic, is the easier one. Uh, each of us have experienced the pandemic in a different way. Some of us have not been touched by it. Some of us know people who were sick. Some of us lost people. Some of us got sick ourselves. Um, uh, or lost family members. So the experiences and the stresses that we've experienced with them are very, very different. Now put on that the layer of our individual personalities um, uh, and the way that informs the way we process that trauma. And now you start getting this mosaic of individuals who are dealing with, with, a, with a trauma that it's easy to say, oh, we all went through the same thing. No, we haven't. We went through very different traumas and we process them very, very differently. And I think that the most important thing for us right now, whether it's at large, the, the, the American society, or whether it's whether it's a, um, uh, in a submarine, I, you know, like Rival is a submariner, uh, which is such an enclosed uh, community and environment, is to acknowledge that each of us is processing it differently. And it is trauma. And so we need to allow ourselves to have that space. Um, don't never assume that the way you're thinking or your way you're processing something, even if it's the same piece of information, the same fact, the same truth, doesn't mean that the person next to you that you share a bunk with is processing it emotionally in the same way. And the big part of it is giving that space uh, to process it. So you do bring up a really great point that people in the service are generally pushed together in very tight quarters or very stressful situations. Uh, so you teach a course on emotional intelligence through the School and Forest Service at Georgetown. Why is emo developing emotional intelligence such a valuable skill for young leaders, especially in the military, 
and especially those who will be placed in situations that are stressful or leading other young service members from backgrounds that may be different than their own. Yeah, I think I'll, uh, well, in, in emotional intelligence, we, we typically talk about four general planes um, uh, of emotional intelligence. One is self-awareness, then we have self-management, uh, we have social awareness, which is kind of the awareness of others, uh, and then management of relationship. And when I was actually a young uh, soldier and I was in the officer course, um, I was, I think I was 20 at the time, maybe just short of 20. We move very quickly in the ITF. And I remember, uh, you know, I was a kid and, and I looked up to my commanders uh, before and it was, you saw those charismatic, strong, tough individuals with this like stern face that will, you know, they will, they will make your life hell, but you damn respect them for that. Um, and you look up at them, it's like, I want to be like that. I want to be, when I go, when I'm in the officer course, I want to be a leader like that. And I remember very, very quickly into, into the officer course, my officer, officer in charge of me kind of grabbed me for a little personal talk. And he said, you can't try to imitate somebody else. Um, when you try to act and pretend you're somebody else, everybody can see it. And even if you're a great actor and some people miss the fact that you're acting, when you're under fire and in combat, that act goes away. And if your soldiers, the people you command and under your command, do not believe that you're authentic, they will not follow you in those stressful situations. They need to trust that their commander is genuine and is authentic because that is really the, the biggest driver. You know, when somebody shoots at you and you say, okay, stand up and run forward, like nobody in the right, it's an illogical thing to do per se, unless you trust a leader that says this is the best way, the best course, best course of action for us. Um, and so he, he was trying to tell me, base, figure out who you are and base your leadership on that. Now, I, I do not have a poker face. Um, or I, I certainly cannot act. Um, I smile a lot, way too much to what I perceive to be needed as, as, a, as an army or military officer. And I doubt myself a lot. And in that kind of self-exploration, I, I found that, that I found my confidence from professionalism. So for me, like if I knew what I was doing, I had confidence. If I didn't, I can't just stand up and, and talk and pretend. And so instead of actually viewing all of these things, the no poker face, the smiling too much, the self-doubt as weaknesses that I had to hide, I actually kind of decided I'm going to like that. I'm going to look at them as something that I lean in uh, into as a, part of my, um, as a part of my leadership. And that really served me well. Um, it served me well on the day-to-day -day, uh, leadership. And, and so I had a very different kind of relationship with my soldiers because, you know, even though you have your little hat and you can put your cap down so they, you know, so they can't see that you're cracking up smiling uh, or laughing at something, they all knew that I was, and that was fine. And I was not, you know, beyond the symbolism uh, and I was not trying to hide it. So it helped me in the day-to-day -day, um, uh, leadership and communication, and it helped me in combat conditions and it helped me in situations of loss. And so I found that to be one of the most powerful uh, lessons that I've, that I've learned from this. And, and in that is, is the understanding that there's no such thing as a good personality or a wrong personality for leadership. Like we need to remove judgment from the type of personalities that, that we have. Each, each of the personality we have is unique and, and it's good in itself. It's just a matter of if you are genuine to it and you lead with that. Sorry, that, that's how 
we were able to basically to, to you know to to communicate to negotiate to engage and to lead uh, within within the military now all of this is an example of, of self-awareness uh, uh, but equally important are the planes of social awareness and relationships and uh, and relationship management in order to try and kind of understand your other uh, servicemen who are serving with you your commanders at all of their levels the community the environment in which you you actually operate and that includes uh, foreign allies um, uh, that you practice with they're coming from a very different uh, perspective and yes i would claim also your enemies i think it is extremely important uh, for servicemen to to be able to do that exercise and try and step into the enemies again not to not to justify the enemy but actually to understand where they're coming from because then you can can figure out how they're going to respond to different actions that you take as we know not everything uh, well, you, you guys know it better than i do but um, uh, war is not what it used to be uh, you're not just fighting a two-dimensional enemy and it's about the, the firepower and uh, you're embedded in the population you need to understand how that population reacts uh, when the population is hopeful uh, the likely that they will host the people who are going to try and hurt you are is less and uh, when they're less hopeful and they believe that violence is the solution then you'll have real trouble existing within within another population so there's a lot of things to try and understand that that is i think very very critical uh, uh, to servicemen and leaders in the military so in regards to stepping into somebody else's perspective at your role in, in your role at the richardson center for global engagement you often travel to countries like myanmar iran and north korea to conduct fringe diplomacy and these are countries that don't generally have the traditional relationships, especially with the United States or other Western countries. And some of these, these travels have been for the purpose of negotiating the release of American hostages. Could you briefly describe fringe diplomacy and then talk about the extent that emotional intelligence has influenced your interactions and your successes in these countries? Yes, I, I, absolutely. And, and uh, I'll start with... Uh... French diplomacy is kind of, the, the way I define it, is, is kind of the space that is just outside of the government's capacity and reach in international relations. Um, it, it is mainly based on the fact that, that my, in my belief, uh, that non-government entities, whether it's a private sector, whether it's NGOs, whether it's academics, artists, whatever it is, uh, we kind of share the same objectives, uh, you know, of governments. And, and we're looking for, this of all governments, we're looking for a stable, peaceful, um, and, and prosperous world but as non-government, we actually have a little bit more flexibility and reach or less constraints, one can say, than governments do. And that's kind of the space that I, that I really like operating in. Uh, so we're not doing it to spite government. We actually coordinate with governments, especially in, in some of these problematic places, but we're not doing it on behalf of governments. Um, and that kind of gives us a little bit of a, of, of a space to work with. And there, there's, there are many two types of work in, in what we do or generally described. One is engagement and the other one is intervention. And intervention is uh, a writer, as, as you mentioned, is, is typically manifests itself when you go and you negotiate a release of a political prisoner or a, ho or a hostage. And intervention is, is extremely sexy and everybody loves it. And it's quick, it's tangible, and Ruth Blitzer does a special on it. And, it's, uh, and it is, and it's important, and it's, it's life-changing because you know, you're able to actually help a family uh, through this. But those, those interventions would not be possible without the role of engagement before, because you cannot create trust 
with an, with a rival or an enemy in the middle of a crisis. You, you need to create that trust kind of before. And that's where the engagement work really uh, comes in. And, and, and that takes all sorts of forms and shapes, depends on the country and the community that we engage with. One of the important things for us is that we're not doing the engagement solely for the purpose of being able to have an intervention at some point. So we want to make sure that the engagement in itself is something that is helpful to the society and the community that, we, uh, that we're dealing with and as well to our own country. And that goes back to that peaceful, stable, prosperous kind of uh, uh, aspirations that, that we're looking at. Um, and emotional intelligence in all of this is, is, is such a critical form, but not only on the, on the basic way, oh yeah, we're going to North Korea, let's think what, what, the, uh, what the leader Kim Jong-un thinks and, and wants, even though we do do that a lot, but I'll give an example. When I was there um, to try and negotiate the release of uh, Otto Wombier, the American uh, student that was uh, held there, uh, when you land in North Korea, uh, you're assigned uh, a couple of minors, minders next to you. And, and yes, they're there to make sure to, you know, to, to overlook at you, to see that you're not doing anything wrong and all of that stuff. But they're also, they also have another job. They need to spend the first few days with you in order to basically mind from you everything that you are there authorized to negotiate, what you're willing to give for it, what you really want, because that minder uh, that is responsible for you has to submit a report to his boss, which at this point is the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, articulating to him exactly what you are about to ask him and what you're authorized to give him in return. Why? Because that Foreign Minister or Vice Minister is not authorized to negotiate with you they have to send that memo up to the leader who then tells them how they can respond to what I'm going to say. Now, there's a lot of ifs and conditions in this. That means that, that my minder has to write an accurate report to his boss. And he's typically a young guy. It's probably a first assignment because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big shot. So, you know, it's a, it's a young officer and the stakes for him are pretty high, meaning if his report is not accurate, if I show up in the meeting with the foreign minister and I surprise the foreign minister, putting the foreign minister in a position where he doesn't know what he's authorized to tell me or not, because that's not what he expected. It's not only the professional career of my minder that is at, at, at stake here. And so you have to kind of, that gives you an insight into his mindset and his emotional state when he's talking to you. And, uh, and so in that case, I, you know, knowing that, because it was not my first visit to North Korea and we prepare and we think through this. It was indeed my first time leading the delegation and leading the negotiations because Governor Richardson was with me in the past. This time it was me leading it. Um, so in, in the ride uh, from the airport to the to our uh, guest house, uh, I kind of I looked at my minder. His name was Kim originally. Um, and, and, I, and I said, you know, if I fail this mission, Governor Richardson is going to kill me. Like, I'm really nervous about this. I really need this to, to work well. And I was obviously sharing something myself. I, I wasn't feeling that, that, that much that my life is at stake, but um, it, it's a way of, of giving him a license to understand or to see that, hey, you know, we're on the same boat here. And, uh, and we talked a little bit and then I said, look, because, because, I'm, because I, I cannot risk this, this is my first real mission that I'm leading and I, I want this to be, to be successful. 
So I don't want you to be surprised by anything. Ask me all the questions you need. I'm going to give you the genuine answer. I promise you, I'm not going to surprise you. I have no interest in surprising you. And, and by doing that, it almost became for that, in that little bubble, in our bubble, him and I became on the same, in the same team, trying to make sure this trip is as successful as possible without any of us losing our heads over it, even though we're on the opposing side of the negotiations. Um, and so that's an example of, of how that plays. Uh, and also, the, I, I, I'm trying to take it down from, oh, yeah, let's think about Kim Jong-un and how he thinks about the world. But actually, it's not only about the leaders, it's about every level of the, of the people that you're talking to and engaging with. And, and yes, we do that also kind of a little bit more in the, you know, for population. And it, it actually, if I may, it, it, there's an important point here to touch on, on the difference between empathy and sympathy. Um, and, and empathy, in the way I look at it, empathy is your ability to really step into somebody else's shoes and genuinely understand. No, try to minimize how much you project yourself. You always are going to project yourself into it, but minimize it as much as possible. Stepping into their shoes, understanding where they're coming from emotionally and, and in terms of their own personality to the extent that you have that, that is empathy. Sympathy is when you align your own objective with theirs. And, and, and it's, there's a line there. And sometimes it's a hard line to uh, it's it's a it's a hard line to keep, especially when you're an ambassador and serving in a host community. Sometimes that gets kind of mixed, and it's a challenge to do it. Um, but in any of of my missions, when I try to empathize with you know with the North Koreans or with Hamas, which I had negotiations with in the past, I'm not sympathizing. Trust me, I'm not. I, I don't I don't justify what they're doing. I don't align my objective with theirs but I can better understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing and therefore predict how, uh, what levers can actually get some results from them. And I'll, and I'll say that, that people who do not, who cannot experience empathy or cannot deploy empathy, uh, sometimes confuse it with sympathy. And it's a very easy way to attack, attack empathy. So as, as myself, Israeli, former uh, IDF soldier, um, I do believe that the Palestinians have a right for a state. Uh, and I empathize with the Palestinian position. And people who are trying to criticize my position would say, oh, he's a, he's a Palestinian sympathizer. He's an anti-Israeli. And that is a cheapening of, of, of that kind of nuance. I do not justify killing of civilians by Hamas, not by a long shot. Um, uh, uh, but do I, uh, and at the same time, I can empathize with the Palestinian plight. And that's something that is kind of important. So going back to my little uh, North Korea example on this one, if we, you know, if you ask any American or most Americans, what should we do about North Korea? Everybody will have ideas. We should sanction, we should bomb, we should engage, a whole variety, everything, you know, legitimate in, in a conversation. But if you ask most people, why do the North Koreans hate us so much? There will be a blank stare back because we just don't take time to try and think about it, not to justify it, but to think about it. And in the case of North Korea, one of the, one of the, the main questions that I like to ask when I, when I talk to audience is, is if anybody knows how many Koreans died in the Korean War. Because most Americans, even if, even if they know that there was such a war, they think about it as this sandwich war that was between World War II and Vietnam. But for the North Koreans, there were four and a half million Koreans that died in that war. 
Now, not all of them were North. They were North and South, but for them, it's the same people. It's Koreans. And that number is a huge number. And it's, it's not that long ago. This is second, third generation since. So grandpa and grandma and mother and, and father and uncle and mother who were lost, each family. And we have never acknowledged that. Again, it was war. There's nothing to, it's not about apology. It's about acknowledging. And, and once we understand that, we can start to understand the, the big rift that we have on, on skepticism between our people, on mistrust and their belief that, we're sitting here to, doing this uh, this conversation, and really what we're thinking about is how do we invade Pyongyang, which obviously it's not what we're talking about, but that's their perception of it. So I'm curious about, in the example of your North Korean minder, when you shared you know, your insecurity or your vulnerability, that might be something that you know intuitively feels dangerous or risky. Can you, can you talk about navigating that? I mean, in my mind, I think, okay, there might be some risks with showing them a weakness. Obviously, you're building rapport and showing them that you understand and empathize his situation. How do we how do we balance that? Or are there real risks that you're incurring by doing that? Yeah, no, thank you, Eugene. And that's a great question. And, and you know, at least in the IDF, we used to say that the, that the, that the great... A, a, a good question is a question I have an answer for. And a great question is a question you, is a, is a question you have a slide for. So I don't have a slide, but my, my, the, the point I'm going to, to go to is that it goes back to what I started with, which is finding out your genuine self. Now, what I just described as, as a style of, of engaging and, and, and leaning in is the style that works for me and my personality and, and my way uh, of doing so. I, I am, you know, when you take those personality tests and we can talk about them a little bit, I, I come, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I come on, on I come, I come high on honesty, as I as I mentioned, I'm not a good actor, and so instead of trying to, um, uh, for me, hide what I actually believe and think, uh, I lean in with this. So genuine, being genuine, being authentic, is almost my power tool when I engage in this case. So even though it looks like I'm sharing vulnerability, um, or I, not looks, like I am being vulnerable and sharing that. But it looks to some people as weakness. In my, in the way I operate, it is actually not a weakness. I'm appealing that way. But if somebody else next to me has a very different personality, like my boss, to be honest, Governor Bill Richardson, we are very different personalities, and for him that will be a sign of weakness. Funny enough, he likes to refer to me as weak uh, because of these things. Uh, he would do the opposite. Like he would, he would go hard. And, and so my, my point on this is that it really depends on your negotiations. Your negotiation style should depend on your personality, your genuine and authentic personality. And that's something that uh, I believe everybody needs to kind of explore. And, and there are tools for it, and I can talk about, talk about that as well. All right. So we're in a time right now, and you've mentioned this already, when we're kind of dealing with social unrest, systemic racism, there's a pretty sharp political divide in this happens in the military. It, uh, it's not an organization that is exempt from the issues that we see in the country. Um, could you talk about a role that you see emotional intelligence playing to utilize or create a more diverse and inclusive force structure within the military confines? Yeah, and, and uh, so we talked a little bit before um, when Eugene asked that question about um, about basically accepting the fact that we went through this trauma and, and accepting the diversity of, of personalities, backgrounds, and, and 
stresses that people have experienced and therefore how we we deal with trauma so i think that's a big a big part of it um and i think that that uh, actually um the military in in its organization is is actually really really well equipped uh, to be able to deal with it if it's been taken it can go either way if it's ignored it can explode um uh, but if it's not ignored if it's actually uh, taking uh, people are paying attention to it uh, it can be the the great melting point that pot that it is and actually help uh, work through all of this um I, I would say in addition to that that there's the, you know that let, let me say that way the, the we the, the way we process emotions um, and feelings is through physical sensation. I know, Ryder, you, you know that because we spent some time talking about it in, in the past. Um, and it comes through through our nerve system, meaning, you know, we, we, it, it, it's kind of its basic biology. Like the, we get signals from our nerve system. It goes into the base of our brain uh, where those signals transform into emotions. And from that point those emotions, that information gets uh, conveyed from the base of our brain or the back of the brain to the front of the brain where we actually process logic and make rational decisions. Um, and that kind of, I guess it's kind of a road. You can see it almost as a road. And the wider that road is or the more lanes we have on that road or the more roads we have, or maybe we make it into a, into a highway, the, the faster the information can pass and more information in terms of volume can pass through it as well. And that is actually kind of like a muscle. It's something that you train. It's something that, that you do. Um, and, and there's a bunch of, of, of ways of, 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 of doing that and improving that. Um, and some of them are kind of fun to do. Some of them are, are you would think of, of, of as a little bit weird. Uh, but even just talking about them, it starts making you aware of where people are at, not only where you, you are at and improving it, but also recognizing things with others. Um, and so tiny little uh, things like that and practices that I, I hope can actually help, uh, again, it, for our society in the US, but also, of course, in, inside the, the military uh, community. Let's see what one, one of my favorite is actually looking at uh, watching some of your favorite movies. And and when you look at those uh, look at those movies, you 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 know a movie is your favorite because there's scenes in it that move you emotionally. But this time when you watch it, think as you're as you're getting to that scene, focus on what is the what is the physical sensation you're feeling at that moment. There's a reason why we like to say, "Oh, I got cold feet." There's actually fun little body imaging of people, uh, and you scare somebody, and you can see that their feet get cold. Like it's it's not just a saying; it's a physical manifestation. When you say, "Oh, it felt like somebody punched me in my stomach," it's actually that's how physically it feels. People kind of say, "Oh, I'm so mad, I want to pull my hair out." There's actually hot spots in your hair that when you feel that rage, um, and, and so so the more we become aware of it, just by saying it or recognize it when we watch a movie, when we read a book, uh, when we're watching our friends and we see something and we we just catch ourselves in that moment and say, "Oh." That's what it feels. That improves that kind of hope. I just extended another lane of traffic in that little road in my brain, between the back of my brain and in front of my brain. And so things like that are, are extremely powerful to, uh, to do. Uh, people watching is fantastic. We, I love that. Uh, keeping, keeping a little mental note or, or a physical note when you see something, maybe not even in yourself, but in somebody else. 
And so you look, you watch TV and you see something in the news, you see some people react to just like, oh, that's, that's an emotional reaction here. What was just thinking through this, these are the tiny little exercises that absolutely need, there's a lot, a lot of a neuroscience research on this on how it actually changes and improves your ability. One of the dangers and, uh, uh, of this little biology that we have is that split second between the time that emotions are processed in the back of your brain to the time that it gets processed in the front of your brain, at that point, any action, physical action you take is not rational, it's emotional. And there's a name for that, it's called, it's called emotional hijacking. It is when you react based on your emotional responses and just simply because the rational part of the brain has not received the information yet, but you're already reacting, you're speaking already, or you're punching somebody already, and it might be absolutely against your, your interest, but you're in that moment, you're emotionally hijacked. And, and the more we train our brains to recognize those emotions early, uh, speed up the, the, the processing time of it, uh, the less we will be subjected to, to emotional, uh, emotional hijacking. And one of the fun things uh, and exercises on this is for everybody who's listening, uh, uh, probably uh, next time you get really mad, just take a mental note and see, am I emotionally hijacked right now? And just find yourself in those moments because again just finding yourself catching yourself one time or remembering a time that you were is already going to prevent you from getting uh, hijacked next time or at least recognizing it while you're doing it you might not be able to stop because you're emotionally hijacked but you would recognize it awesome uh, it's like being back in class again it's fantastic if i can if there's something i was thinking about and that actually went uh beyond our class, so I'll start from here a little bit. But um, one other thing that I think can be can be very helpful, and there's more and more tools of that um, for everybody is, and, and it goes towards the kind of that finding your authentic self and your authentic um, uh, leadership, because it's not something that is easily uh, uh, found. Uh, there's four steps I think that anybody can take. The first one is getting your data or getting data points. What do you, What do I mean by that? taking some of those personality text, the tests. So there's the Hexaco test, which is a great, easy, available, free test to do uh, when you get kind of results on personalities. Um, there are other personality tests um, uh, on this. You take some, you get some group feedback from some group exercises about your own personality. You do an emotional intelligence test also available. Some of them are, are kind of uh, long and, and, and boring. Some of them are, are too short, but they exist out there. It, none of these tests, by the way, is is the absolute truth. These are data points. But the more data points you have, the bigger or the more coherent picture you have about yourself. So getting the data is stage one. Stage two is now kind of accepting the data or struggling with the data because you're not always going to like what you what you get or you don't always going to agree with what you get. And, uh, uh, so for example, in, in the Hexaco, one of the, in the Hexaco test, one of the personality traits is agreeableness. And it is very common that somebody that, that scores very low on agreeableness uh, will come back to you with feedback and say, I think this test is completely inaccurate. I came uh, uh, really low, came out really low on agreeableness and I'm a very agreeable person. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we're saying it here as a joke, it happens a lot. Um, uh, uh, but the point is that, that you have to kind of go through the process of accepting those, that, that data that you're getting, those uh, data points. The third point is embracing it. And that is the part that is kind of hard for us because there's so much stigma 
associated with any kinds of personalities. And also, to be honest, the nature of the tests is not very helpful because when you, somebody says, oh, I, I graded low on agreeableness, it sounds like a negative. When you're low on agreeableness, that means that you're the one who's a critical thinker, that you're the one in a group that is going to say, wait a minute, I disagree with that. And make the, that's an extremely helpful characteristic. In other words, what I'm trying to, to say in, in, that, in, in that kind of embracing part is remove judgment from this. There's no good and bad in this. You just have to accept it for what it is. Um, you might, you know, I wish I was a better poker player. Maybe would have, you know, I would have won some games. Um, but I'm not, and I'm embracing that. It's not bad or good. It's just the way it is. So embracing is kind of the, the, the third part. And then once you embrace it and you feel complete with who you are um, and, and what you know about yourself, the fourth part is really leaning into that character. And because from that, you can now design everything about your leadership, your communications, your negotiations, your engagement with everybody. And, you know, it can be your colleagues in the, in the submarine. Uh, it can be your commander. It can be the people that are under your command. Or it can be your partner in life. It can be your parents. It can be your friends. It can be your neighbors. It's, it's, it's everybody in your life. As soon as you become, you figure out your authentic self and you're not trying to pretend um, in terms of char character or being somebody else, uh, the easier it becomes. Um, and I think the more reliable it is. And I think that's a useful uh, tool to, to use. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, emotional intelligence is an incredibly important topic, especially for young leaders in the military. And I appreciate you taking the time to kind of delve a little deeper into the subject. Of course. And thank you for having me. And thank you for your service, you and everybody who's listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? a podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.